Go ahead and join me in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And if you, uh, just a reminder, as we always say week in, week out, if you do not have a physical Bible and you would like one, I invite you to join us in the Pewback Bible in front of you. And if you don't own a physical Bible, you are free to take that one as your own. We want everybody to walk out of here having God's Word, so that is yours to keep. Um, Last week, we began a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' longest and most famous recorded sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus reframing our view of what the kingdom of heaven is like while displaying the authority he has as the king of this kingdom. So a little bit of a spoiler, but the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew writes this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, referring to all that he had just gotten done speaking of, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus in this sermon is speaking as one who has authority because he truly has authority as the king of this kingdom. Last week, Tim walked us through what we would call the Beatitudes, which are not a list of things to do, but rather a list of things that characterize the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. And so this morning, we're looking at a handful of verses that immediately follow on salt and light. And if you've been around for a while, they they might look a little bit familiar, That's because Tim taught on this passage back in September during our Rhythms of the Church series. And to be very transparent, we were initially considering skipping over this passage just because um, we talked about it in the last five months. However, as we were discussing it, as we were talking about it, we determined that it would be a great disservice to you, um, to all of us as a church, to just move over this passage because it is so deeply connected with what Jesus just gets done speaking about in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, again, Jesus is saying this is, who, this is what characterizes those, the citizens of the kingdom and what he's going to talk about here in this passage this morning is what it looks like, what happens to the world, the impact that the world um, is, the impact the world receives when the citizens of the kingdom live out these principles. And so there's a deep connection between these passages. And I don't know about you, but five months ago, for some that might seem long, long time ago, but I don't remember a meal that I had five months ago, physically, right? And so in the same way, I think that it would still be beneficial for us to go back into God's word, even if this is a passage. Like we, we don't always remember, as much as I would love to pretend that you remember everything that I say or teach, I know that is not the case. And so it would benefit us to go back to this passage, even if it was just five months ago that we were there. And so to serve as a runway for us, I believe it would be beneficial for us to read back through the Beatitudes and then launch into our passage. So look with me beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so again, the Beatitudes here, they tell us what characterizes the citizens of the kingdom, while this passage will tell us about the impact these citizens, you and I as followers of Jesus, will make on the world, having lived these things out. Look with me at verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So he is telling us more of who we are. But before we can understand what he's saying about us, we, we must understand what it is about salt, a city on a hill, and a light that he's drawing our attention to. And it all comes down to purpose. During this time, salt, for example, had several purposes and functions. Salt preserves. Salt purifies. Salt also enhances taste. It gives flavor. So um, when we say that salt preserves, we don't think of it that way often today because we have freezers and fridges, but back then they did not have these type of um, right, mechanisms to preserve food. So what they did was they put the food in salt. We know that, that food rots and decays over time. If you've ever gotten a banana, you know in two days that thing is, it's dead, it's rotten, it's gross, it's disgusting, right? It, 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 not that you would ever put banana in salt to preserve it. That was a bad connection. But either way, regardless, you get my point. Salt naturally rots and decays. And so what they would do, salt, it actually, it doesn't prevent the death from occurring. It doesn't prevent the rotting, but it slows it gradually. In the same way, salt purifies. And a lot of the Old Testament practices and, and rituals and, and, and sacrifices and all these things, like there, salt would play a purifying role in the people of God. And likewise, the one that we know and we love the most is that salt enhances flavor. If there's something that is just very bland, you add a little bit of salt to it. It just, there's something about it that brings out the flavor. It makes it something that we desire. And if you've ever, also kind of a side effect of this is if you've ever had something really salty, you always need a glass of water afterward. So what salt does is it naturally, it naturally produces a thirst in the one who's engaging in the salt. And so um, these are the different functions of the salt. The purpose of a city set on a hill, it should be apparent, but you don't set a city on the hill so that it can be hidden. I mean, this is obvious. You don't put something high up for people to see if, unless you want it to be seen. So the purpose of a city being set up on a hill is so that it would be visible to people, so that it would be seen. Perhaps it's seen as a refuge, a place that people can go to. So that purpose of it being there is so that it would be seen. That's the purpose of its location. And likewise, the purpose of a lamp on a, on a stand, it's to give light to all in the house. When I walk into a dark room and I turn the light on, what happens is, well, before I was in darkness, I cannot see where I'm at. I have no direction. I don't know where it is that I'm going. But when the light is turned on, I can see. I can actually see what's there. I have direction. Nothing, nothing that I just told you is groundbreaking, I don't think. Right? Like, this is not intended initially to be a how-to seminar, but I think it's important 
that we understand the functions of salt, the functions of light, the function of a city set on a hill because Jesus is not talking about literal salt, light, and cities. So while the purpose of these things are, are evident, Jesus also warns that there are ways that each of them are rendered ineffective and therefore don't live up to their purpose. For example, salt, he says that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt in its purest form cannot lose its saltiness. Pure salt does not lose its effectiveness. The way that salt loses its effectiveness is when it becomes contaminated by outside minerals. When it's contaminated by something other than um, uh, like the salt itself, when it's contaminated with things with unlike properties, it begins to lose its preserving power. It loses its effectiveness. It, lose its, it loses its ability to be salty and therefore enhance flavor. And useless salt is to be thrown out. Like, we all have like a room in our house or a basement of some kind where we like to keep things that are really useless because we hoard things, salt is not one of them. At least it shouldn't be, I don't think. So if salt is not doing what it's supposed to do, what happens? It gets tossed. Similarly, a lamp, it's lit to give light. Duh, right? How to, right? When we light a lamp or when we flip a switch to, to make a room lit up, it's so that we can see. But a light can obviously be covered up. Imagine if you and I were to walk into a dark space and you say, hey, can you turn on the light? And I turn on the lamp. Maybe I, maybe I turn on a lamp and then I say, and then I, and then I put a, a cover over top of it so that the light is completely covered. And I say, hey, is, is that better? I, I would think not. That doesn't serve the purpose that it's meant to serve. I'm meant, the light is meant to shine and give light and direction. But if I cover that up right away, it's going to be rendered ineffective. In each case, salt and light are rendered ineffective. And once again, nothing groundbreaking here, but Jesus isn't talking about literal salt and light. These are illustrations that show us more about who we are as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are the salt of the earth and light of the world, and what Jesus is showing us is that we have a kingdom impact on the world when we intentionally lean into that and live out our citizenship. So, like literal salt and light, we are meant to preserve and shine in a dark and decaying world. A citizen of this kingdom is meant to stand out and be seen as a representative of the kingdom. And this is the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. On the heels of him very clearly telling us that anyone who is in Christ, anyone who believes and trusts in Jesus, they are a new creation. On the heels of this, he says that through Christ we have been reconciled to God. So we have, we have been reconciled and we have been entrusted, he says, with the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God and now we have been entrusted with that same ministry towards others. And he says, you're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representative of a nation or a kingdom. An ambassador embodies and lives out the values of that kingdom or that nation. And so we represent the kingdom of heaven as ambassadors. How? By being salt and light. Again, what does salt do? It preserves. 
It purifies, it enhances flavor. In a world that's decaying because of sin, do we bring life? Right? Paul in Romans 8 says that the creation is groaning, that it's, it's, been, it's been exposed to corruption. That means it's decaying. As salt, are we preservatives in our spaces? Right? Do we bring life into the spaces that are dark and dying? Right? Do, we, do we bring redemption? Right? The salt purifies. Do we have a purifying sense about us? That when we come into a circumstance, a conversation, are we seeking to bring a redemptive peace? Are we redeeming these moments and these circumstances? Salt enhances flavor. Are we, are we bringing a flavor into the spaces that we find ourselves in? And I'm not talking about a charismatic personality. Right, some of you got too much flavor. I got too much flavor sometimes. We're not talking about a charismatic personality that everyone is just drawn to, but is there something about you that, that makes that circumstance, that makes that situation, is there something about that makes it different, makes it better? Right, maybe, it's a, maybe there's, something just, there's something bland going on, but you and joy of the Lord would, would increase that moment. I mean, others may see these things in us and say, oh, look, they bring a lot of positivity, right? It's a lot of positivity, but we would say, no, 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 no. This is because of joy in the Lord, right? We want to redeem. We want to bring life. We want to bring flavor into those times. Simple, simple little example of this. Was a, about a month ago, I was on the phone with my doctor's office, and I was um, scheduling a follow-up appointment, some different things, and, and she just, she kind of stops me and she goes, hey, I just want to tell you, you are so polite, Thank you for being so polite. And she started to go on and on and starts talking about how, um, you know, I remind her of her son and all these things. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, you know, and I'm just, and, but I found that interesting and I'm, I'm hopeful that she doesn't normally have this type of experience or she has the experience, she has more experiences like this because why would she feel that she needs to point that out? Maybe it's because that she often does not get politeness when she's talking with people on the phone, making doctor's appointments or whatever it may be. But she pointed this out in me and I was, you know, I was grateful for that, but it's not because I'm just inherently polite. I mean, shout out to my parents, right? Thank you for raising me, but there's a reason, there's something else that's caused me to be this way, right? It's not just, it's not in me. Similarly, in a world of darkness, it should be easy to see light, right? Verse 16 let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This might initially sound uncomfortable to us. I mean, Jesus is telling us to let our light shine so that others would see us. Now, if it truly ended there, that would be bad because our pride would lead us to take credit for these good works and relish in our praise um, from others, but it doesn't end there. We do want to be seen but not so that people would think much of us, but they would think much of God. And so as they see us, and as there's something that's standing out in us, we redirect their praise, we redirect their acknowledgement to the Lord. We attribute it to him. We don't hold on to that. We give that back to the Lord because it's his in the first place. So yes, doctor's office receptionist lady, I am polite, but it's because of Jesus. We need the people to know that. So we want to be seen. However, we don't have to work extra hard to put ourselves in positions to be seen. 
Because in darkness, light doesn't have to work to be visible, does it? It just stands out by being light. This is where I think sometimes we get discouraged and overwhelmed because we think that we have to put in a bunch of extra work to be salt and light. Right? The, the good works that Jesus is talking about here aren't extra things that we do separate from our day-to-day lives. Good works are a natural byproduct of me living my life according to God's will. Good works can be many things, but what Jesus is talking about right before this is the Beatitudes, right? And, and remember that the Beatitudes don't make up a list of things to do. They characterize who we are. I would suggest to you that these good works he's talking about consist of us simply embodying what we see in the Beatitudes, It's embodying who he has made us to be as citizens of the kingdom. For example, what does it look like to embody being a peacemaker? If you find yourself in conflict, maybe you are the one who is in the wrong or you are in conflict with someone else yourself. A peacemaker. Maybe maybe it's going to that person that you're in in conflict with and saying, all right, I need to own my part. Will you forgive me for this thing that I have done to hurt you? Right, stepping in to be a peacemaker that way. Maybe it's you are you are witnessing a conflict. Maybe it's within the family. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's within your friend group, and you yourself have nothing to do with the conflict. But but you want to be a peacemaker. You want to be a minister of reconciliation, and so you step into that and you risk being told to butt out of it. But you do so with the right heart and posture to say, hey, I want to see you guys thrive and flourish in this conflict. It's not going well. So you step in and you embody being a peacemaker, right? We have been reconciled to God through Jesus. And one of the the simple ways that we can exemplify that is when we step into conflict and relationships and say, I want to reconcile. I want to play a role in being a peacemaker this way. What does it look like to embody being merciful? Mercy is... Not giving, something, not giving someone what they deserve. And so when someone wrongs us, maybe instead of giving them what they deserve, wronging them back, instead of retaliating, we choose to forgive them. That's hard. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what does it look like for us in our spaces, like when people wrong us, to extend mercy and redirect that to Jesus? redirect that to the Lord. We can, these are all things, by the way, that he's going to elaborate on later in the Sermon on the Mount. When people see us live this way, it's going to do something. Makes me think of the lame beggar that was healed in Acts chapter three. And I know it's been a long time since we've been in the book of Acts, so I want to bring us back. Um, Acts chapter three, verses nine and 10, and all the people saw him being the the lame beggar, walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement and what had happened to him. Do you see this? They, they saw him one way. They saw him being lame and begging. Right? He, he had no movement in his, in his feet and his leg. Like he couldn't walk. But then the next time they saw him, he was up, praising the Lord, and he was moving. He was jumping. He was excited, and it made them wonder. There was something, they saw him before, they see him now, there was a difference, and they wanted to know, what was that? 
And oftentimes we look at these passages in Scripture and say, well, cool, that happened in Scripture, but we don't, we don't always think that this happens. But this happens today still. This picture, happen, this idea happens today still. That people see something and are, are wondering, what is this for? There's a curiosity. It's happened in my own life. There's a girl that I knew in high school. Um, I had actually known through middle, middle school all the way up through high school. And as always, when you, when you graduate high school, there are many people that you lose connection with. But this was, this was years ago where I was a little bit more active on something like Facebook. Um, but she, you know, we still were able to see each other's lives and interact. And, and she, so she knew me prior to me coming to know Jesus. I didn't come to know Christ until I was a student at the University of Akron. And so she knew who I used to be, but she randomly messaged me one day and we were talking. It's gonna come up on the screen. And she said, I, I really don't know where to begin because a lot of stuff has happened and I, I don't know why. I can't seem to get myself to trust that everything will be okay and work out. And, and I know people do that by entrusting themselves in God, but I can't seem to get my anxiety down. And I don't know if you, you really went through a lot and decided to find God and stuff and, and you did and I don't know how you did, if that makes sense. But this is what stood out to me. I, I know we haven't talked much. She's talking recently. But I've seen how much has changed you for the better, and I want to find myself there too. Guys, I, I wasn't doing anything different. I wasn't doing anything that stood, I wasn't doing anything intentionally in that space to draw attention to myself. She saw who I used to be. She knew who I used to be, but there was something that she was witnessing about me just going about my stuff that was very different, and that drew her attention. I wasn't doing anything extra. I wasn't seeking to bring attention to myself. I was simply being the person that Jesus changed me into, and it grabbed her attention. And I don't share that to say, look at me, I'm the poster child for life change in Jesus. I have my days where I do not live up to this but the Lord still uses me and he still uses you from these moments if we simply embody these things. What does this look like in your circles, in your spaces? What does it look like, again, we're talking about something, yeah, social media, that's a space that you are to steward over, that you manage. What about your workplace? What about your family? What about your neighbors? What about your friend circles? All of these different spaces what does it look like for you to embody the Beatitudes, to be salt and light in these spaces? To simply live, live out to be who Jesus has made you to be. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 1.3 that if you are a follower of Jesus, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. By his spirit, we have everything that we need to embody what we see here, wherever it is that we find ourselves in any given moment, in any given circumstance. However, we still bear the responsibility to lean into this. And Jesus' warning about ineffectiveness, it still stands. And so while I, we cannot lose our citizenship, we can lose our effectiveness. While we cannot lose our citizenship, we can lose our effectiveness. And I want to take a brief moment to emphasize that first part, Right? We cannot lose our citizenship because Jesus' words appear to imply this in that salt illustration. He says that when, when saltiness loses its, or when a salt loses its saltiness, right, it's, it's useless and it's, it's thrown out. I want to be very clear here that Jesus is not the one who's doing the throwing out. 
The one who's doing the throwing out is the one in whom the salt is intended for. Right? The salt of the earth. If we have not been good ambassadors or representatives of the kingdom, not living as a preservative, not living as a light, when we do offer someone the gospel, they're not going to see, they're not going to see anything different about our lives. They're not going to see that what we are now offering them is useful. And so they're going to toss us to the side. They're going to throw us out. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a loss of relationship there, but we won't be seen as credible to them. And so Jesus is not the one who does the throwing out here. It's the ones in which we are offering ourselves as salt because we don't have that credibility with them at that point. So while we can lose our citizen, or while we cannot lose our citizenship, we can lose our effectiveness. And I'll offer a few reasons how this can happen. First, we intentionally hide for the approval of others and to avoid persecution. This follows with the illustration Jesus gives of a lamp being lit, but then being covered by a basket. The light is still there, but no one knows it's there because it's been hidden. There are times where we intentionally hide our faith from those around us because we don't want to offend anyone. Right? We, we want people to like us. We don't want to be mocked or persecuted. And all that is understandable. We shouldn't want to offend anyone. We should want people to like us. Right? We, we shouldn't seek to be mocked or persecuted. However, embodying the mission and values of the kingdom naturally invites opposition. It's going to naturally happen. Why? Because light exposes what's in the dark. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Right, the hope is that they would see our good works and give glory to God, but many will see our good works, our kingdom values, and take offense because the gospel challenges and exposes the sin that they love. The goal is not to offend, of course, but I would rather unintentionally offend someone with the gospel than intentionally hide my allegiance with the king and his kingdom. Remember what Jesus said before this, just before this. Verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's reminding us of a couple of things. One, we should expect this because the pro it happened to the prophets happened to Jesus, happened to the early church, we too should expect this type of mocking. We should expect being reviled. We should expect this. But also, we have comfort in knowing that there is reward, that there is blessing. Like, God does not leave us alone in the midst of those things. Like, we, we are told that there is blessing and there is reward waiting for us as these things happen. And we do not need to fear because of Paul's words in Romans 8. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Hugh did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is, God's. It is God who justifies. 
who is to condemn? Second reason we might be rendered ineffective is because we become stagnant in our pursuit of spiritual growth. 1 Timothy 4 says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. This language, train yourself for godliness. This isn't the only place that we see this type of charge. Philippians chapter two, Paul says, work out your own salvation. Not referring to earning your salvation, but exercising Working it out. Work out the faith that you have. Second Peter 1, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and he goes on to list these different things. And so we see this theme that we are to, we are to put forth effort in our salvation, rather building up, working out our salvation. This process is called sanctification, our spiritual growth. We have a role to play in growing in our faith. Practically, this means engaging what we would often refer to as spiritual disciplines. Things like, the simple things like praying, reading God's word, gathering together and hearing the preaching and teaching of God's word, but not just being hearers of God's word, but as James tells us in James 1, to also be doers of God's word. We grow in our faith with input, but also as we take these things and live them out, as we apply and we are doers of God's word, we grow as we live out these kingdom values. We do this because it's God's will for us. First Thessalonians 4.3 says that, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It, our will, like God's will for us is that we would grow in our faith, that we would grow spiritually so we intentionally put forth the effort to do so. But when we don't, we grow weaker. Right? Just as if like we were to stop working out physically or even taking a step further, some of, you, some of you don't maybe do that, if you were to stop like moving your muscles at all, just the day-to-day things that we would do to use, like move our bodies and to engage our muscles, if we were to stop doing that, what would happen? We would whittle away. I mean, that's exactly what would happen. Like, we would become ineffective physically. We're not using our bodies. We're not using our muscles. And without use, they will shrink and become ineffective. And the same is true of our faith. When we become stagnant in our growth, we grow weak and we grow ineffective. We become like salt that loses its taste and light that grows dim. But, as always, Peter encourages us that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, he says they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise. If we engage these things, if we are increasing in this character, we, it will keep us, it will prevent us from being ineffective or unfruitful. Third reason we might become ineffective is that we become more, in, more influenced by the world than becoming influencers in the world. We become more affected by the world rather than affecting change in the world. Here's the deal. We are constantly being shaped and molded. Right? Whether, whether we're in high school, whether we're in college, whether we are in our 80s, we are still being shaped and molded. We never ceased from being molded. And this is a matter of influence, and it really plays off the previous point. When we're seeking to grow in our faith and draw near to Jesus, we will be influenced by the king and his values. But when we are stagnant and we turn our eyes away from him, we open ourselves up to the influence of the world and its values. 
We will always be shaped and influenced by something. And so Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we renew our minds with the will and word of God, we are being conformed to the image of the king of the kingdom and we are well positioned to preserve, to purify, to enhance flavor and shine bright in a dark and decaying world. But when we are conformed to the world, when we, when we are not engaging these things and we are being conformed to the world, we become like tasteless salt that just blends in, right? If there's blandness in, in, a, in a dish and we are tasteless salt and we insert ourselves into that dish, it's not going to change anything. All we've done is blended into what's already there. We become like dim lights that, that almost more or less blend in with the darkness than stand out. We become ineffective. If you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself being swept up in the things of the world, there's hope in the fact that you're just one step away from changing direction. And here's what I mean. Paul gives the illustration in Galatians chapter five. He says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He gives us this walking picture. When we trust in Jesus and we receive his spirit, we can walk by his spirit. We can seek to please him. But that doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with the flesh. We, don't, we still at times will, will take steps. We're walking one direction or the other. And so if we are walking according to the flesh, the hope is in the midst of this. If we, if we are being conformed by the patterns of this world and concerning ourselves with those things, there is hope that all we need to do because of the Spirit of God in us is turn the other direction. There is hope that we can change the direction and we can begin walking this way to be conformed instead, have our minds renewed by God's will. The last reason we might become ineffective is that we become too overpowering in taste and brightness. Have you ever had something that had too much salt in it? Blech. I, I, I'm not eating that. Some of you might have more discipline than me, but if there's something that has too much salt in it, I, I'm not going to eat it. What am I going to do? I'm going to toss it, right? I'm going to throw it out. Or maybe you've been driving in an oncoming traffic. There is, you know, someone's got their brights on. That's always fun because you can't actually see, right? The light is so bright it actually begins to blind you. Here's the thing. Salt is meant to give taste, but too much makes us not want to eat it, right? Light is meant to give us sight, but if it's too bright, it actually prevents us from seeing. There's irony in this, but we can actually be so potent, so overpowering in our desire to be effective for the kingdom that we actually become ineffective, and, he, and here's how this works. Here's what this looks like. Right? I have a zeal for the Lord. I have a passion for the Lord. And I want to share the gospel with everyone around me. And so I'm approaching people abruptly. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Have you heard of Jesus? Let me tell you about him. You know, maybe, maybe we go old school and we hand out those gospel tracts. You know, we just, we kind of leave them strategically in places. Right, maybe that means like, we're, we're texting people scripture out of nowhere, which these things are not bad of themselves, of course. But as we do these things in this zeal, we do it without regard to who they are. And so we come in with our ready-made plan, our ready-made script, our, our Bible tract, whatever it is, and we approach everyone the exact same way. 
Here's the way that I tell people about Jesus, and we just do that every single time the same way. There's a genuine love and care and a desire for them to know Jesus, sure, but our approach is impersonal. And, and as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about how Jesus approached people, and I, don't, I can't recall a time when it was impersonal. Jesus always approached people in a very personal way. And here's just a few examples of this. You, you think of the woman at the well. John chapter four, the woman at the well, she came there um, to get water, right? She, she thirsts, she is thirsty. And how does Jesus approach her? He offers her living water. He knew what her felt need was and said, hey, I have the answer, but it's not the water you seek, I am the living water. I think of the man in John nine who is born blind, right? He obviously cannot see and Jesus physically heals him and gives him sight. But later on, Jesus comes back to him and, and says, hey, you now see the Son of God. You now see me. The physical healing that he received was meant to be um, a reflection of what he was going to do spiritually. He came to the man who was blind and gave him physical sight, but also spiritual sight. He went to what he needed. When Jesus called some of the disciples, he approached them as they're fishing. They're in their boats. And what does he say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He speaks to them in language that appeals to them and that they understand and he draws them in to follow him. And in approaching people personally like this, Jesus didn't water down the truth in any of these situations. He never watered down. He still revealed himself and their need for him. But we lose this personal touch when we come in too hot and we just overwhelm people. If you've ever heard of the phrase, being on fire for the Lord, it refers to having a deep passion for Jesus. But man, there's a difference between a wildfire and a bonfire, isn't there? Like if you think about it, right, you think about a wildfire, um, you're not going to see images of people running towards it to get warm. When people see a wildfire, they're running the opposite direction because that thing is out of control, it's reckless, and it's causing destruction in its wake. People are running from the wildfire. But contrast that with something like a bonfire. I don't know about you, but there's something about a bonfire that just, it, it, it draws me in. It brings me warmth, brings me comfort, I feel at peace. And the beauty about the bonfire, too, is I don't have to worry about it burning me. I don't have to worry about it causing destruction because it's, it's calculated. It's, it's contained, but it's still effective. It draws me in. It makes me want to, to draw near to it. Like, let's, let's not be wildfires, right? Let's be like bonfires to people. Zeal for the Lord, it is good, but it is not a license to be reckless, and forsake wisdom and discernment in the way that we approach people with the gospel. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of his kingdom. You are salt and light. There's nothing extra we have to do. It's simply embodying, living out who he has made us to be. And, and the good news is, this isn't a solo mission. All right, this can get overwhelming. I mean, because sure, we go out and we be salt and light in our own specific circles, in our own circles of influence, where we work, where we, where we play, where we go to school, wherever we find ourselves. But we do it, there's still a sense in which we do this together. 
If we were to walk out these doors today, resolve to simply be who Jesus has made us to be, it will have a cumulative kingdom impact on the world. And so I'll end with this thought. Jesus again says in verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, interestingly, Jesus says we're light of the world. We're the light of the world. But elsewhere, he calls himself the light of the world. How can that be? Think about the moon. At night, it's rare that it's, there's, there's pitch darkness, and if there is, it's because the moon has been covered. But in, in most nights, we're still able to see because of the moon. But the moon itself isn't producing light for us to see. What is the moon doing? The moon is reflecting light from the sun, which enables us then to see. And so in the same way, we don't produce this light in and of ourselves. But when people in darkness see the light of our good works, we are just like the moon. They see light, but the light in us is merely a reflection of the sun. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God who has called us out of darkness and into light. And Lord, you have entrusted us, you have called us into your mission, your, your plan for the world. And you remind us here of who we are, that we are salt and light. And God, we know that as you remind us of these things and you call us into this, that you will be with us and that you empower us. God, you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so I ask, Lord, that, that you would provide all that we need to be the salt and the light that you would have us be in each of our circles. And God, I ask that even in this moment that, that you would bring to mind for each individual in this room what our circles are our family, our friends, our, our, our workplace, where we live, all of our circles of influence. God, would you give us the strength and conviction to lean into who you have already created us to be, salt, light, ambassadors for your kingdom. God, when we walk out of here, would we have a confidence and a peace of who you have created us to be and would we lean more and more into who we are? God, we thank you for your word and your reminder this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.